The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your nematodes of nerdery, banging on trash cans of trivia. My name's Jordan Runtog. I'm Alex. I'm Alex Heigl. My name is Alex. It was hard to work in some some puns in the intro there. This it it didn't really lend itself to it. Were your were your were your dogs? Are people happy yet? <laughs> and today we are talking about a classic from the golden era of '90s Nickelodeon. It's a little name with a big reputation. We are talking about Doug. Yes, the 11-year-old with his head in the clouds who navigates the trials and tribulations of youth with his best friend, his dog, and the girl of his dreams, the fair maiden known as Patty Mayonnaise. Despite his everyboy qualities, the imaginative visions he writes in his journal, not a diary, a journal, dramatically illustrated the high highs and crushing lows of being a kid. In that sense, this show is not unlike my beloved Wonder Years, which we still have to do. We're working on that. Uh, it's an impressionistic vision of adolescence that both connected with those going through it and those who enjoyed looking back at it. The show kicked off the block of Nicktoons programming way back in 1991, along with Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy, but Doug was always my favorite. Why? Uh, well, it should be pretty obvious. <laughs> I was an anxious and sensitive boy who daydreamed a lot and processed unrequited crushes through writing while clad in a sweater vest and khakis. <laughs> so all in all, watching Doug, I felt seen. Ren and Stimpy was way too grotesque for me. Rugrats was a little too manic and weird, but Doug was gentle and even genteel, and he provided a nice alternative. In a sense, he made the world safe for sissies like me. <laughs> Sissy representation is so important. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crucial. He was such a contrast to cartoon heroes out there like Bart Simpson, who was rude and crude and had sort of a Gen X slacker energy. Doug, on the other hand, was painfully earnest and sweet, and so was the show. I really struggle to think of a Nickelodeon show that took such pains to impart messages of kindness and morality. 
I imagine this means that you hated the show. <laughs> Uh, way to tee me up there. Um, yeah. <laughs> what did you think of that? Uh, you know, I just think it was like, looking back on it, it was honestly just something I watched because I had no interior life. Does <laughs> <laughs> like, it get you in touch with your interior life by how he no, would like... No, not at all. Oh, no, God. not at all. I remember zero. I was a very amoral child. I remember zero. <laughs> all of my morals came from martial arts films. Um I no, I remember like I I don't I I remember Doug. I remember the music. I remember the beats. I remember his his the curious his sick that beats he, the sick beats. No, I remember the fact that he's that he wears like that was the first place I saw the David Byrne big suit was yeah. on Doug for some reason. Same. Um, but I don't remember it particularly fondly or with interest. Um, no, it's not. You said we discussed this episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's part of, like, the whole Nickelodeon melange that I just, like, you know, when I was a kid, before I had interests, or, like I said, an interior life, and I would just be flipping through, and I'd be like, oh, Doug is on. That's fine. I bear it yeah. no malice, but it's, like, it's, you know, it's a it's a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Are there things like that? This is a sincere question that just shows that I am now old. Do kids have that now? I think there's so much choice and you can be so proactive of, you know, you have anything available at any time. So you make the choice to watch or do X, Y, Z. Are there yeah, things that people have just no just have idea, on dude. in the background? Yeah, I don't think the experience is the same unless it's like, um, yeah, just like putting on. I've heard like people put on anime in the background and just like oh, let it cool. roll or, or any. I mean, anything that just has like a sheer volume with it. But I think like so many. Uh, the generational divide right now is just like algorithms. Like back mm. in the day, your your algorithm was which channels you knew the the the, the numbers to, yeah, to <laughs> you know. And and now it's just like you can be on you know YouTube and that's your TV and it's actually cued into what you've watched before. Which is again why I was like, okay, I'll watch Doug. Doug is on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's you know it's a it's it's got a it it had a unique style and 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 it I I suppose its appeal was precisely that it was so sweet non-threatening i mean you did have like red and stimpy which was like a horrifying fever dream and then uh i remember avril monsters the most yeah um, that was a creepy show too yeah but yeah i don't know there's no like doug episodes it's it's like a gestalt image for me i'm like ah yes i remember all of these characters all of these music cues i can hear patty banney's weird marge simpson preternaturally gravelly <laughs> voice but I remembered, like, not a specific detail about it at all. Yeah, we're not going to get into, like, you know, anything too deep in terms <laughs> of, like, the plots on this show on this episode. But, yeah, no, it's something that I look back on fondly. And um, I was really surprised about how many internet fan theories there are out there about Doug for a show that was so not inflammatory. There's a <laughs> lot out there, which we'll get into. But one of the theories that just really resonated with me was that a lot of people put forth the theory that Doug Funny is the original emo kid. And I, I enjoy this. Allow me to quote the theory put forth by a retro junk user named System. Doug was the original emo kid. He sat in the corner of the park and wailed on his banjo, singing love songs about patty mayonnaise. What do little kids do? Idolize cartoon characters. Emo and the subsequent emo kids are all Doug's fault. Doug was emo, keeping a journal, getting his ass kicked by bullies, and wearing a sweater vest. Doug made being a loser completely acceptable. Sounds like he's taking the negative approach in this, but I say <laughs> yes. He did make being a loser completely acceptable, and I say God bless him for it. I don't know if he's the original emo kid, but it is funny when like you look at 
Um, like Jay Gatsby might be. Mm. I was going to say, it's funny when you look at like a very specific kind of like 90s hardcore punk band, they, they, they like preppy chic was kind of in fashion. So I guarantee you, you can find pictures of like life of agony or like integrity or any of these like uh, those are probably bad examples but like you can definitely find like 90s hardcore or emo bands that dress like Doug Funny like to a T I mean he kind of looks like a Gap ad yes yes he does well from the real life love story that inspired Doug and Patty to the drama of the show's transition from Nick to the House of Mouse the animation legend who provided the character's voice and the completely insane conspiracy theories that have taken root surrounding the series here's everything you didn't know about Nickelodeon's Doug. Chime in wherever with the... (laughs) (laughs) You bet I will. (laughs) Try and stop me. (laughs) Doug Funny is the cartoon alter ego of illustrator Jim Jenkins, who somehow manages to have an even more cartoonish name than the character he created. (laughs) That's a great name. He would later say, Doug is an exaggerated version of my memory of being a kid. Doug is me, and I am Doug, and, I am. and we are all together. <laughs> uh, and many plots on the show are taken directly from his own life. And story editors would talk about coming up to him and arguing that a certain point in the plot that Jim proposed just didn't make any sense and didn't seem very realistic. And he would say, well, that's the way it happened. So this was a lot of this was really plucked from his own life. Uh, and despite moments like that, it sounds like he was a lovely man to work with. Born in 1953 to a very devout household in Virginia, Jenkins was a compulsive doodler from his earliest days. And he'd later say, as a little kid having to sit quietly in church, you'd pray there's a little blank spot on the bulletin to draw on. Church is a big theme in this episode. These doodles provided an outlet for a very straight-laced, polite Southern boy to vent some of his more out-there thoughts and point of view. And, you know, I said a devout family. I mean a devout family. This will become something of a theme in this episode, but his upbringing was pretty strict. He says that he based the whole episode of Doug not being able to dance on the fact that he wasn't allowed to dance as a kid for religious reasons, <laughs> which is something that he admits now, quote, seems absurd. I mean, did he like grow <laughs> up in the town in Footloose? Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, Jim Jenkins moved to New York City in the late 70s, which must have been a hell of an adjustment for this guy who wasn't allowed to dance as a kid. I was uh, going to say 1970s yeah. New York, like the stuff that made Frank Miller lose his mind. Like, good <laughs> Lord. I'm surprised he, he's alive still. I'm just like superimposing the creator of Doug on like Shaft's body in the opening of the movie, <laughs> walking through Times Square and all the porn theaters. <laughs> so that's weird. Uh, and in the late 70s, he worked as an artist and puppet for the pioneering children's TV network Pinwheel, which would eventually morph into Nickelodeon in the following decade. But his path to creating one of the first Nicktoons was a little more winding than that. He had a really rough go for a few years there in the early 80s, and he said that he created Doug, quote, during a very dark time in my life. The whole art thing wasn't really working out for him, so he was stuck in a corporate ad agency job that he hated, and he'd gone through a bad breakup, and he also had a brutal bike accident that sidelined him for a time. And so he started sketching this character who became kind of a fantasy escape for him, almost like a Walter Mitty figure, and that became Doug. 
And he started to flesh these sketches out with his partner, David Campbell, his production partner, his future production partner, during happy hours at a Mexican restaurant in Greenwich Village, which features prominently in the story. Uh, I'm really sad. I couldn't figure out which Mexican restaurant in Greenwich Village it was. <laughs> I'm going to say it was Senor Swanky's, which is no longer there, but it was on uh, LaGuardia and Bleecker's. So Jim Jenkins would drown his sorrows at this Mexican place and try to forget about his crappy life and develop this Doug character as a way of blowing off steam. And he'd say much of Doug was created under the influence of margaritas, which is not what I expected for this very sweet show. Before long, he'd built this out into a whole town of characters, many of which were pulled from his own childhood. He'd later say, I wanted to create a place where there was no overdue rent and no delinquent phone bills. A place called... <laughs> Bluffington. Da, da, da. <laughs> he was a big fan of the Peanuts cartoons as a kid, saying that he admired the, quote, simplicity and honesty of the storytelling. He admired its purity. <laughs> and in this way, Doug became his own personal Charlie Brown and company. And similar to Charles Schultz, he'd insist that the show had a very strong moral compass with lessons baked into each episode in a way that has kind of unshakable religious overtones. We'll get more to that later. But at its heart, Doug is very much Jim Jenkins. He'd later say, I didn't keep a journal like Doug did, but I drew. And Doug was definitely about this any guy, my alter ego. Some of the stuff I drew was very dark and cynical, and some of it was very silly. That was the beginning of figuring out that character. And initially, the character wasn't named Doug, but Brian, which is sort of a, like a Monty Python-esque take on a random generic man's name. Uh, but this name really just wasn't landing for Jenkins when he started to try to develop Doug, the, the character, I should say, into something that he would market. He thought that the name Brian was too, quote, fancy. <laughs> Surely the only time that's ever been said about yes. the name Brian. He said he wanted a name that was super simple and straightforward, a one-syllable kind of deal, much like his own, Jim. Jenkins later said, if this were the 1940s, I would have called him Joe. And I thought that Doug had that feeling and that sound about it. It was a conscious choice because I wanted him to be this very neutral, middle-of-the-road guy. His middle name, Yancey, is borrowed from his grandfather. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> and while we're on the topic of names, I want to give a quick shout-out to Doug's neighbors, Bud and Tippy Dink. This was the first time I'd ever heard the sociological term dink, which stands for double income, no kids, which is precisely what the dinks are, which is why they have plenty of disposable income to buy very expensive things. Um, I, I thought always, they were swingers. Uh, yeah, I definitely got that vibe. You get that vibe? I, I always yeah. had dink in my mind always sounded vaguely obscene to me. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. Who's to say? Who's to say? There were several early incarnations of Doug that predate the Nickelodeon show. Uh, including two commercials. And you could never have, I could never have guessed what these were. The first was nope. an ad for the Florida grapefruit growers in 1988, which featured Doug in his signature sweater vest, uh, on a pogo stick because friend of the pod, pogo stick, <laughs> friend of the pod, grapefruits. I like grapefruits. I do too. It's my favorite citrus. Really? Yeah. This is how you know we're running out of steam creatively, is that we're just getting into <laughs> discourse about <laughs> citrus fruits. Uh, the second ad, featuring both Doug and his dog, Porkchop, was for a 1990 USA Network commercial. Do you, I, I don't remember this. You do. I do, yeah. It almost looks like an old Red Bull commercial. You know, the ones that... Oh, like, yeah. Like the yeah, 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 yeah
Uh, but Jim Jenkins' actual ultimate goal for a time was to make Doug into an illustrated book series. Uh, he assembled some of these sketches into a book called Doug Got a New Pair of Shoes and Went Out Pounding the Pavement. Title needs work. Uh, maybe not in the 90s. Bar was a lot lower. Mm. Um, he would good-naturedly joke that he was turned down by all the best publishers in New York. And then, as a last-ditch effort, he reached out to Nickelodeon at the top of the 90s. Nickelodeon had started out as a more family-friendly children's broadcaster in the late 1970s under the name Pinwheel. In 1979, it was rebranded under the name we know today. And for most of the 80s, Nick got by on pre-licensed content, stuff like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Where's Waldo? But um, they started to want to get into original content of their own, and they wanted to find creative visionaries and develop their first original slate of animated series, the first Nicktoons. So on a friend's recommendation, Jenkins got a visit with Nickelodeon executive Vanessa Coffey, who is a hugely important figure in the history of children's animation and TV in general in the past 30 years of TV. She ordered series for Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats. And so Jenkins came in and presented her with a copy of his book, Doug Got a New Pair of Shoes. She said, get out of my office. No. Uh, <laughs> as Jenkins later described, Coffee looked at the cover of the book and in the middle of me describing it, just ran out of the room, which is, you know, disturbing. But he <laughs> hadn't have needed to worry. She was running to tell her boss that they needed to take this show to pilot immediately. She later explained why she was so immediately drawn to it. She said, Nickelodeon was, we're kids. We're the kids' channel. We're your channel. And so I thought Doug fit into that perfectly because it was their demographic and their story. Yes, a 12-year-old's lens into the renderings of a deeply religious middle-aged southerner. Um, <laughs> Nickelodeon's stated goal this, in this era was being anti-Disney, so they didn't focus group stuff and test things out. They went by purely on intuition. And Jenkins would say, Vanessa Coffey had this notion of creator-driven, innovative stuff. Uh, they signed a deal that included options for five seasons of 13 episodes apiece. That sounds insane. Yeah. Are you yeah. kidding me? This thing would get out and the big computer that lives in David Zaslov's head would say, <laughs> the algorithm is saying this isn't getting enough ratings. We are deleting it immediately. Oh, my God. We live in hell. Um, they ended up not making that many for Nick, but we'll cover that in a, in a few minutes. The show began production immediately, and Jenkins put together a small animation studio, Jumbo Pictures, leading to an eight-minute pilot episode called Doug Can't Dance. Can't as in forbidden from, or can't as in physically unable? I don't remember. Uh, physically unable. So like you. Or, or emotionally unable. I'm emotionally <laughs> unable. I'm, I can physically do it. I'm, I'm able-bodied. I just, I just can't. Uh, Nickelodeon was shockingly hands-off in those days, and they didn't get much in the way of notes. Director Yvette Kaplan, who'd go on to co-direct episodes of Beavis and Butthead with Mike Judge, as well as the movie version of that, Beavis and Butthead Do America, said, we had a lot of freedom in those days. It's difficult to remember in this day of insanely flooded consumer marketplace IP-driven crap that uh, a lot of the cartoons of this era were invented solely to sell toys <laughs> or uh, promote comics, which were then linked to toys or to promote movies, which were then made into comics and toys. And Doug was all original, baby. An original scoop of well-worn, 100% white cotton. 
Yes, now we have to talk about the world of Doug, starting with the town where he moves in the first episode, Bluffington. It's a town filled with eccentric characters, not unlike Andy Griffith's Mayberry or the Simpsons Springfield. And though its location is never stated, Bluffington is a modified version of Jenkins' hometown of Richmond, Virginia. Two of the most obvious references to Richmond are Judy Funny's school, the Moody School, which I always thought was just a joke about her because she's so moody, but it's named after the Moody Middle School, which is a real place. And also the Four Leaf Clover Mall, which is a nod to the Cloverleaf Mall in Richmond as well. And also, Doug moves to 21 Jumbo Street, which I never really picked up on this. That was apparently a joke about the high school cop show 21 Jump Street, Mm. as well as the series production company Jumbo Pictures Incorporated. The show Bible for the series was extensive. Jim Jenkins went nuts. He had four plans that he drew for each character's home, as well as maps of each street in Bluffington. And he also had elaborate backstories for the founding fathers of this fictional town as well, which I guess they did touch on that at some points during the series. But still, he really went nuts on the backstory, probably because it was based so much on his own life. It's so funny to me that so much detail went into this to create just the most boring sounding stuff in the world. <laughs> like, you, had, you literally, how long did he sit and think of names before arriving on mayonnaise as a surname? <laughs> well, he took that from, there was a friend of his named Pam Mayo. I know, I'm just saying. It's, it's... It's, it's, he was it's, like six it's, margaritas deep at that point. I know. To get as wacky as man is. I, exactly. Like the most boring man alive. It's like it's like Jim Morrison taking peyote to write like Good Day Sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the town itself, the inhabitants are borrowed from Jim's childhood. The most extreme example of this, if you could really... Okay, extreme is a bad word to use in the context of Doug. But the, the most... Uh, elaborate example of this is the wonderful Patty Mayonnaise who steals Doug's heart as soon as he moves to town in the first episode. She's based on two people, a woman named Patty. I don't think her last name has ever been publicly stated. And also someone named Pam Mayo, hence the mayonnaise. Uh, now why, would a, why, would, why would a parent do that to their child? Give them a first name that rhymes with ham. Oh, wow. How do they not think of that? I didn't think of that. <sighs> Did you ever see that Saturday Night Live sketch with Nicolas Cage where it's just him and his pregnant wife, like, working out, trying what they're going to call the baby, and every name that the wife suggests, Nicolas Cage shoots it down with, like, he comes up with some reason why the kids will make fun of him oh, for having that vaguely. name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, a FedEx guy comes and is, all right, Mr. and Mrs. Asswipe Nelson? Is there mm. a Mr. and Mr. Asswipe Nelson here? And uh, he's like, it's pronounced Asweepe. It's Swedish. That's medium funny. Yeah, it was good. Nicolas Cage really sold it. Uh, So there are these two women that he based Patty Mayonnaise on. It's my understanding that he had a crush on both, but Patty, no last name, was his big crush. And this is sweet. When the show was about to launch, I guess they sent out cards announcing the premiere, and Jenkins sent one out to this Patty woman and wrote her a little note that said, pay particular attention to Patty. You were the inspiration. Considering her name was Patty, I'm guessing she probably had an idea, but it was nice that he gave her a heads up. Uh, I forgot how tragic Patty Manet's backstory is. Her mom died in a car crash before the series began, which also paralyzed her father, which is why he's in a wheelchair. Dark! Yeah, such groundbreaking representation for the sadness of life in this early slate of Nickelodeon shows, you know? It's just as dark as, like, Chucky's mom's 
subplot from yeah. Rugrats. But I mean, I guess Disney kind of has the precedent of every lead character has some horrific Tragedy. backstory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, on to happier, uh, greener pastures, or bluer <laughs> pastures, I should say. The character of Skeeter, Doug's best friend, is based on Jim Jenkins' best friend from childhood. And this is cute, too. They had fallen out of touch, but reconnected after Doug launched, which I just, I think that's very sweet. Yeah. Less sweet is the character of Roger the Bully, who was indeed based on an older neighbor of Jim Jenkins who lived down the street. And I guess this bully lived next door to the Klotz family. Mm. Hence the bully's last name. And when the Doug movie came out in 1999, they held the premiere in Richmond, just in honor of Jim Jenkins' background. And so Jim reached out to the real-life Roger and said, oh, I hope you don't want to beat me up for this character. And according to Jenkins, the ex-bully laughed and said, well, you know, we've, we all have somebody who's a little older than us, a little further along and a little more forceful. He told me I, he had some bullies in his life, too, which I'd never thought about. He's a good guy. That all sounds like non-excuses to me. Uh, all the goofy names in Doug, which for my entire life I assumed were just made up for the sake of being quirky, are in fact taken from real life. That's yeah. I can't, I can't, I, even I, I, even even found though non-interesting, somewhat like that. Like ah, uh, whatever. Mrs. Fun. Wingo was Jenkins' favorite teacher in school, and that was Doug's teacher. The name of Doug's unseen principal, Mr. Butt Savage, which I, I always was so sure was yeah some kind of obscene joke, was actually the name of his elementary school principal. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. No word on the vice principal, Mr. Bone. I think that name was made up. They modeled that character after Don Knotts. And Jim Jenkins later said, anybody that was from Richmond and was from my past got a sort of extra bonus when they watched this show. <laughs> he didn't even change the name. So he wasn't sued. Um, oh, Doug's beatnik or hippie or whatever she is, older sister Judy, has kind of an interesting literary background, which feels appropriate for her. She's always clad in dark clothes and a beret and glasses and is very theatrical. And reportedly, she's named after the play Shakespeare's Sister by Virginia Woolf in which she writes that if Shakespeare had a sister, she would be named Judith. And that's also why the character of Judy Funny is obsessed with Shakespeare plays. And also, before we move on from this, we perhaps should give a nod to the nematodes, which are a recurring bit in Doug, and also a number of other Nicktoons, which I didn't realize. They crop up not only in Doug, but Ren and Snippy, Hey Arnold, All Real Monsters, and also SpongeBob SquarePants. And the nematodes actually have a basis in reality. They're microscopic roundworms of the phylum nematoda. In the world of the show, they are just elusive monsters who live at Stinson's Pond, and Doug goes searching for them in the second episode. I don't think we ever see them. What is your conception of a nematode? Is it like a snipe or more like a Loch Ness monster kind of thing? I was seeing Creature from Black Lagoon. Oh, okay. That was so like a yeah, humanoid. That's how I saw it. Gotcha, like gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, okay. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. 
save 30% on super comfortable, machine washable, and great looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We got to talk about the writing of the show, which was done with some of the same story editors who worked on the adventures of Pete and Pete and Clarissa explains it all. Tonally, three very different shows. Man, Clarissa explains it all. That show sucked. Really? Why? What a boring show. Really? The only thing I remember that about is the guitar stinger when that guy comes in the window. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I remember always finding it weird that this guy would just just kind of had a ladder handy to go into this teen girl's bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't like Melissa Joan Hart. Yeah, is it because she's really in the Shirley Temple? Well, that's certainly a red flag. Uh, One of the things that set Doug apart was that, as we said earlier, Jenkins insisted that each episode center around some sort of ethical dilemma and contain a moral of some kind. (laughs) For example, there's an episode where Doug finds a wallet filled with money and grapples about whether or not to return it to the owner. Rube. He buys fancy (laughs) shoes that don't actually fit. Uh, his teacher discovers a rude caricature he drew of her, and he has to own up to his actions and apologize. Uh, Jenkins asked the writing staff to literally write out the central theme of each episode at the top of the script before turning it in. He would tell the writers, I want the show to remain relevant in 30 years. Jenkins would later say, I, of course, wanted the show to be funny and well-structured, but more than anything, I wanted it to matter. I wanted to make a statement about how, at least from my perspective, we ought to treat each other and ought to live. Uh, one of the ways that Jenkins' intensely religious upbringing influenced the shows. Um, there are a lot of little nods to that. If an episode takes place on a Sunday, you'll see that Doug's family is in their church clothes. And there was a time when Jenkins even considered becoming a youth minister. He said, I had a lot of training that way. When I graduated college, I actually worked in a church as an apprenticed minister. I pretty quickly realized that was not for me. And I was very grateful. There's nothing wrong with it, but it was not my path. And in 10 years, he'd be slugging down margaritas in the east village and <laughs> creating animation that that is a cautionary tale that people still tell in his parish growing up <laughs> if you move to new york you will follow the path of ruin that jim jenkins that pastor jenkins did 
if you don't follow the word of God, you will create beloved a art, Mel, a Mel, a Mel, a Mel cartoon series. <laughs> oh yeah. In a way. I mean, it's kind of like Mr. Rogers where he, he had this religious background and he decided to turn the television as his pulpit. Hmm. We put ourselves through enormous pain to avoid pain. And I had this notion of what if we didn't do that? What if we just told the truth? But in the adult world, the notion of truth and not truth is complicated. I didn't want to show all of the ambiguity of the adult world to kids. I wanted to show kids a world where everyone took honesty seriously. This approach was unique in the animation sphere at the time. Doug director Ken Kimmelman would say, To me, it was a breath of fresh air looking at Doug. It really had humanity, good spirit, and ethos. With so many other cartoons, you can get laughs from contempt, but this had a lot of respect in it. It was kind of uphill, not downhill. Speaking of humanity, good... Nope, I got nothing. <laughs> Do you remember that uh, that popsicle commercial where the kid was like, he was like, the colors, colors do, do the, colors. the colors. I'm uh, colorblind, kid. Well, the colors, Jordan, <laughs> the colors of the characters on Doug. <laughs> In case nice. you can't, thanks. In case you can't remember, Doug's world is filled with people who are literally every hue of the rainbow. Roger is green. Doug's best friend Skeeter is blue. There are purple folks in there. Is I think aren't the Dinks purple? One of the Dinks I think is purple. Chalky Studebaker, maybe, or maybe he's blue. No, BB might be blue because she's a blue blood. I don't know. I forget. But yeah. Now we're getting into eugenics. <laughs> Many have theorized that over the years this was an intentional political statement on race or commentary on the world being filled with all kinds of people. In fact, this was not the case. It was born of alcoholism and Mexican food. Jenkins said that he and Doug, co-producer David Campbell, came up with the notion of unorthodox color tones in a margarita stupor. <laughs> that is a quote. He added that the colors themselves were totally random, telling the Huffington Post, Now it's time to color in the people, so you grab your eight shades of skin, you put them in your hand, and start. Eight what, shades of skin. I was going to say, isn't that what Buffalo Bill said? <laughs> uh, but then I looked back up at my full set of 200 design markers and thought, I'm making this up. I can do what I want to. Why stop here? He says he began experimenting with the character of Patty Mayonnaise. Patty is a little more thoughtful. I wanted her to have dark skin. Not going to unpack that one. Uh, so I picked a flesh range color, and that can be a great tan or ethnicity. But it, what? But it all just started out as an experiment and how they could go. I don't think I like Jim Jenkins. I don't think I care for him. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I can understand. Uh, Jim said he, uh, you know, this was completely random. There's no, there's no logic to characters being certain colors. You know, Roger the bully is green, but Jim Jenkins said he went out of his way to make Doug's sweet old teacher, Mrs. Wingo, also green. So viewers wouldn't get the idea that all green people were bad, which is obviously true in real life. Um, yet despite all this, over the years, fans have looked to find a logic in the assignment of the colors. The most prevalent theory is that Skeeter and his family are black. Jenkins denies this, saying, People are certain that Skeeter is an African-American guy. I'm like, well, he's blue. You put together that he's the music guy and he does some rap stuff or several other things. Great. If that's how you see him, that's great. It's not a bad thing, but I never planned it. Skeeter is blue and he's Doug's friend. <laughs> but then you may ask, why was Doug white? Jenkins said that this was because the character's design was finalized before he was inspired to start experimenting with color shades. But this has somewhat troubling implications as the show ages, 
with Doug and his family being presented as the white norm, the main characters. In 2009, a blogger going under the nom de plume Wolfie G. Nards, which is a reference to the movie Monster Squad, in which a child kicks a werewolf in the groin and exclaims, Wolfman's got Nards, wrote... You've talked about that in this episode, on the series before. It's a deeply formative memory for me. Nards, Messrs. Nards, uh, wrote, Every supporting character around Doug is some wacky shade, except, of course, for Doug Funny, who is a regular white kid. The main character is white in a world full of colorful yet ancillary characters. What does that tell our children? It tells them that only the white race is deserving of a spotlight. Only the white race is worthy of being the star of the show. All other skin tones must remain in the background. Jezebel posted a lengthy exploration of the topic of Bluffington's racial breakdown in 2013, titled, Why Was Doug from Doug White When Everyone Else Was Multicolored? In this piece, the author Callie Buseman writes, The universe of the show hovers at the edge of being the most bully-infested post-racial society of all time, and then he's like, nah, f*** it, let's just have a white protagonist. Journalist Matthew Clickstein did a little digging on the topic in his epic tome, Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age. And the responses from Nick execs are staggeringly, breathtakingly not media trained. Rather than claiming that this was all merely an accident or privilege-based racial blindness, one of Nickelodeon's founders explicitly said that Nick was catering to a white audience because the others didn't get Nickelodeon. He literally called them the others. This is the quote. Children who couldn't afford cable were getting some children's programming from PBS. Sure, it brings up issues of diversity and income level. Yeah. Wow. The others didn't get Nickelodeon. There'll be no Nickelodeon for the others. (laughs) Not until they learn their place. In the same book, Jenkins' production partner David Campbell said, Look, we're not black people, we're not Mexican, but we want the cartoon to speak to all groups. Campbell said in Slime, How do we get past the barrier of ethnicity? And Jim Jenkins, the show's creator, said, Let's try coloring them all different colors. The writer Callie Bozeman commented on the He's black, but he's blue, but he's black explanation, calling it a double-edged sword. She said, it's interesting to see how we tend to project race distinctions into an ostensibly raceless arena. Again, though, since Doug's entire family is white, it's not as raceless as one would hope. So Skeeter became a non-stereotypical point of identification for black viewers, which was great. But he also became a dead end of sorts, a way to allow for increased diversity while simultaneously avoiding the often fraught process of representing race. It's also worth noting that there was a semi-satirical Facebook group founded in 2011 or relatively recent in the timeline of people still using Facebook. Yeah. Called, Why the F*** Does Doug Funny Only Mac on White Chicks? (laughs) Its mission statement reads, in part, over 100 students are enrolled at BB Bluff Middle School, changed from Bluffington Middle School in February of 1996. They are all of different colors, some purple, some green, some yellow, some blue. It's a crockpot of diversity. And out of these hundreds of female students, there is only one, I repeat, one white girl. Her name is Patty Mayonnaise. And who does Doug used to be his lover? You guessed it, Ms. Patty Mayonnaise. Coincidence? I think not. Thus, race has to be a factor. We should just do a show where we read unhinged Facebook group postings. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of all that? Um, You know, they're right. <laughs> like... It is like a breathtakingly uh, uh, 
easy out of having to actually talk about diversity is to be like, look, everyone's different colors. Like, yay. But it's also very telling that like the middle-aged, intensely religious guy from a, a, the literal capital of the Confederacy as his home was like, oh yeah, but the main characters are white. Yeah. Because I'm white. Doug is me. The rest of you aren't real. <laughs> You're all just funny colors. Only me and my family in our church clothes are real. What about you? What do you think? I think it's a good intentions product of its time. It, it's the way it, it's somebody in, in the nineties saying, Oh yeah, I don't see color. I'm colorblind. Yeah. That seems like the most progressive thing you could possibly say. And now the spectrum has shifted so much that that's incredibly tone deaf. Um, I just think it's another one of those types of cultural mistranslations. I just think it's either the most generous reading is that he's breathtakingly unoriginal. <laughs> You know, just like stealing every character name and basing the characters off himself and his family and then being like, well, how do I make this look different? I'll throw a dart at my marker collection and go from there. Like, that's the most charitable thing you can say is that he's just a lazy, lazy creative. Wow. Wait, maybe that's why he did the colors in the first place. It's like how Disney gave Mickey Mouse like three fingers or something or, or four fingers instead of five. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's just so the people wouldn't sue. <laughs> well, now it's time to talk about one of my favorite names in the cartoon world. I love this guy. The man of a thousand voices, Mr. Billy West. Gotta love Billy West. Oh, yeah. Love Billy West, right? Yeah. Probably the most important person that we're going to talk about in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's one of the most prolific voice actors of his generation. He's been called the new Mel Blank by EW in 1998. And he was slash is, I think, one of the only people who could basically approach the diversity of Mel Blank's voice. Mm. Mel Blank was the Looney Tunes man of a thousand voices. He did everybody, and so did... Billy West. After getting his start on Boston's legendary WBCN radio station and working with Howard Stern, he went on to play, I don't know why I led with this, the Honey Nuts <laughs> Cheerios B, the Red M&M, Philip K. Fry from Futurama, and most notably, the two title roles on Ren and Stimpy. I guess first he was Stimpy, and then after animator John Kay was fired, he took over the role of Ren, which is crazy that he was able to take over a voice as distinctive as Ren. You know, and he didn't have any choice in the matter. It was like, oh, yeah, do that. Do that now. Now that we're a huge show. I, yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> the guy, his vocal cords are elastic. So Billy West was assigned to the role of Doug by Nickelodeon executive Vanessa Coffey, the person who greenlit the show. Uh, and I guess she was probably the same person who tapped him for Ren and Stimpy, too, considering she greenlit that. And amazingly, for all of his just incredible vocal talent, Jim Jenkins who never really seems to have a bad word to say about anybody was initially against Billy West casting, hmm. but ultimately he was won over and admitted that Billy was the best choice for the job. Uh, if Jim Jenkins was the heart of Doug, then Billy West is the soul for the role. He adopted a quote, higher kind of genderless voice meant to signify the 11 and a half year old hadn't quite hit puberty yet. West said, I was that kid too. I loved Doug. He'd later say of recording lines, there's a lot of me in there, too, because I'm going through my own experiences in there, because I have a conscience. Uh, here's a devastating factoid I learned while researching this episode. Billy West has been very open about the abuse he experienced as a child from his father, mm. and he said that he developed his impressionism skills as a way to distract himself from his trauma. So that's horrifying. Or strong and brave. I don't know which. No, I hate that. It makes me very sad. Yeah. Yeah, I do, too. 
Uh, but it sounds like this role brought him a lot of joy. He tells the story of staying in a bed and breakfast soon after Doug launched, and he came down into the common area one morning to find a bunch of kids in front of the communal television watching Doug. And he said, my heart was warmed, and I sat there and I watched it with them. And I can't remember if I let everybody in on it or not. I just wanted to watch their reaction and see if it had the effect that I thought it would have. That's very sweet. He also had some very cute run-ins with fans over the years as well. He said, I was at a convention once and this big biker came up to me with this whole complement of leather jackets, boots, and the whole works. He's got this big handlebar mustache and he comes over and goes, I can't do a gruff voice. It's not in my nature. Brother, Doug was my whole childhood. <laughs> he just seemed like he was a little boy again. That wasn't, I could have done that better, but. <laughs> just do the Macho Man Randy Savage voice. <laughs> Brother. Yeah. Doug was my whole childhood. <laughs> Speaking of voices, I totally forgot that the voice of Patty Mayonnaise is Constance Shulman, who's Yoga Jones on Orange is the New Black. Aw. Yeah. Oh, she did a commercial for Kraft Mayonnaise in 1989. No, 89, not 99? Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, speaking of voices, we have to talk about Fred Newman, who was hired to do the voice of Skeeter, including his honks, and also Porkchop. And Mr. Dink, complete with his sputters. But he also worked double duty getting the show's acapella theme together. Jim Jenkins later said, I love fooling with different sounds, taking a conventional type of music, but spinning it by throwing in some weird instrument. Fred showed me how you could take out a guitar and use, and use a tuna can filled with water that you bump with your finger. That's it? Huh. That's all we got on the theme song? Yeah. That's it? They got a lot about the beats, though. I bet you did. <laughs> We can't talk about music on Doug without talking about the greatest rock and roll band in the world, The Beats. With hits like Killer Tofu, Shout Your Lungs Out, and I Need More Allowance. Or is it Need My Allowance? I think it's, it's more. more. Yeah. More. Oh, it was more. Okay, good. Why? Because I do. <laughs> Their place in the rock pantheon is secure. We know their names. Lead singer Monroe Yoder, Chap Lippman on guitar. Flounder on drums and Wendy Nespa on keys. I didn't know Wendy. I don't think I remember Flounder either. Uh, they were inspired, of course, by the Beatles, as the logo suggests, among other more modern new wave influences like the Eurythmics. But of course, the Beatles remain the biggest influence. Jim Jenkins would say, I was a kid during the British Invasion era. So again, right place, right time as a kid in terms of music. The Beats are certainly inspired by the Beatles, but it's also the Rolling Stones, the Who, and many other groups. If you notice with the band, acrimony is at the very core of their being. So they're always having their breakup last concert or reunion concert. And that's the Who. The Who seem like they just broke up every year. <laughs> True. Some of the ways they're drawn remind me of Robert Plant and Ringo Starr. Our drummer, Clyde Littman. You know, oh, I think he's gotten the I think he's gotten the names wrong. Our drummer, Clyde Littman, talks like Ringo. It's a mixed bag of those exotic British invasion bands. Uh, this bugs me because the lead singer looks exactly like John Lennon to me, all the way down to the round glasses. But um, but I won't argue with this man. I kind of thought they were part of like they they had some Ramones in there too. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I guess the uh, voice actor Fred Newman, who is the voice of lead singer Monroe Yoder, voiced his singing voice on Sting. Hmm. Terrible. Hmm. Yeah. But now what about their smash hit Killer Tofu? Is it a strident anthem against veganism? Jim Jenkins says this is not so. <laughs> he says, in that particular case, an outside writer named Alan Silberberg came up with that. And the primary thing about Killer Tofu is that it made us all laugh. More than healthy eating or anything, it just made us laugh. 
So we worked around it and gave that notion of killer tofu to our music guys, Fred Newman and Dan Sawyer, who took it and turned it into a song. And I guess this guy is also behind Banging on the Trash Can, which is the song that Doug writes for his garage band with Skeeter to perform at a friend's birthday party. I think I think B.B. Bluff's birthday party. And Doug's fantasy music video for the song features nods to David Byrne's big suit that he wore in the Talking Heads concert film Stop Making Sense, directed by Jonathan Demme, who also directed Silence of the Lambs, which we talked about last week. Hence the the synergy there. There's always a connection. I, I want to go back through all of the 111 episodes we've done now and try to find a way to link, you know, that episode with the previous one. Mm. I wonder if we could make it all the way back. <laughs> Almost certainly. Yeah. Yes. Six degrees of TMI. <laughs> if anyone works out like a whole graph of that or like a diagram, send it our way and we'll Venmo you five bucks. You know, Fred Newman has two Emmys. No, for you what? mentioned him in a, a, you gave him a, a single graph. You gave him three lines. Well, tell me about him. Great Big Story, uh, the website did an interview with uh, Fred Newman, who is the voice of Gizmo, the Magwai, and who's in uh, uh, the Aliens and Men in Black, among many other things, where he's just sitting in his living room, running through all of the Doug voices, and it's amazing. Um, as you mentioned earlier, he said a big part of what they wanted to do with the theme song was not just use the kind of acapella sounds, but percussion and things that would have been uh, at hand for children that might want to make music with. Uh, hence the shaker sounds, hence the sort of beatboxing of it. But that's all done in his own voice. That's not supposed to be any of the characters for the show. And yes, sadly, he confirms that the lead singer of the beats is based on Sting, or at least his voice. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, as you were. I'm very impressed that, that you know so much about Fred Newman. <laughs> I just love voice actors. Yes, I know you do. Uh, Jim Jenkins, I know you have some not very positive feelings about him, but he has a very, I would say, beautiful quote about the song, Banging on a Trash Can, that he gave to Vice, of all people. Uh, he says that the meaning of Banging on a Trash Can is make your own music. And remember, the hook was think big. It was this whole idea of, even if you're a kid, you have your kid powers intact, and you can do and dream anything, and you can accomplish anything. This one little voice can do this thing, if nowhere else in your imagination. It starts with us hanging around in the backyard with sticks banging on a trash can. That's what the KKK's motto was for a while. <laughs> <laughs> My band in high school did banging on a trash can. I'm sorry, I should stop undercutting you. Uh, I, I, it's very sweet. It's a very sweet quote. <laughs> he seems like a lovely man. It's just terminally boring. That's all. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. 
Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Doug premiered as part of the Nicktoons programming block on August 11th, 1991. It has the distinction of being the very first Nicktoon, followed by Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy. To watch the first episode, Jenkins and his New York-based creative team rented out his beloved Mexican restaurant where he'd first developed the show all those years earlier. And it really came to the air fully formed, uh, not just from the art style, but in the first episode, we meet Doug, Yancey, Funny, Doug gets pranked by the local bully, Roger, meets his crush, Patty, and his new best friend, Skeeter, gets bailed out of trouble by his trusty dog, Porkchop. It's all there, right from the jump. One crucial difference, though. In the pilot episode, Doug originally wrote in a diary instead of a journal, while in later episodes, Doug would get annoyed whenever another character referred to his journal as a diary. Doug initially underperformed when it was first released, at least comparatively. Ren and Stimpy and Rugrats both became immediate cross-demo hits. You remember Rugrats was temporarily canceled until it did so well in reruns that they brought it back. Uh, The success of Ren and Stimpy, along with The Simpsons and Beavis and Butthead, helped jumpstart the adult animation genre, which had been languishing since the Flintstones. Rugrats became the most successful of the shows from a broadcast standpoint, remaining in production for 13 years until 2004. Meanwhile, Doug struggled to find an audience. This made Nickelodeon nervous, considering they had been banking on Doug to be the breakout hit of their three openers. This understandably led to some tension between Jenkins and the network. His description of the era very much sounds like a Doug cutaway. The way I remember it is, one day you were in slow motion, tripping through a field of flowers, birds landing on your shoulder singing, and the next day, we're all gonna die. People (laughs) yelling at each other, you're an idiot, you don't know what you're doing. Not people inside our company, although that could happen, but with the parent company or co-production. I'd go home and see my lovely wife, Lisa, who was so patient and supportive, and go, I don't know if we're going to make it. Yeah, it sounds like this show. <laughs> You're my lovely wife, Lisa. <laughs> Actually, I guess I'm in this, in, in this your, I'm your lovely wife, Lisa. And I'm your lovely wife, Lisa. <laughs> Alex Heigl. <laughs> I'm just free associating at this point. Uh, now we move over to Heigl's Conspiracy Corner, everyone's favorite part of the show that happens once every six or seven shows. 
no one has ever said it's their favorite. I did. Except for my <laughs> for except for my lovely supportive wife, Lisa. <laughs> Uh, the show gave rise to a number of outlandish fan theories. Um, the big one is that Doug's frequent daydreaming and his alter egos are a result of an undiagnosed mental disorder. Hence the fantasies involving the superhero Quail Man, secret agent Smash Adams, and the Indiana Jones-like swashbuckler Race Canyon. The most troubling instance of this occurred when Doug has one of his hallucinatory daydreams while riding his bike in traffic and crashes into a car. And often he acts out his musings physically. Clearly, they are so vivid that he has trouble discerning fantasy from reality, occasionally to near-fatal results. Other theories include that he grew up to become Zach Braff from Scrubs, or the other guy from How I Met Your Mother. Uh, and the rest. This is all from Reddit. God, people on Reddit are f- Yeah, the Rugrats ones have some truly dark fan theories. I remember doing that for the first episode, and that was that was rough. I like the schizophrenia one. I can buy that. Yeah. Well, maybe Nickelodeon suddenly started thinking of Doug as the others. <laughs> because in 1994, they pulled the plug. Yes. After four seasons, they declined to pick up the option for the fifth season, supposedly because of budget cuts. But Doug was also not really in line with the creative direction that they wanted to pursue following the world-beating success of Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy. Doug director Yvette Kaplan said, Doug was too sweet, too nice, too tender. Ren and Stimpy was the big hit. They wanted to do things that were edgier. So Jim Jenkins started shopping Doug around to other networks, and Disney, as they are wont to do, made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. That's Jim Jenkins' literal quote. In exchange for buying Jumbo Productions, Jim Jenkins' production company that created Doug, Doug would become the marquee feature of ABC's, which was owned by Disney's, newly launched One Saturday Morning cartoon block. And thus, the ruining of Doug began. (laughs) It was a very difficult transition from Nickelodeon to Disney and one that many of the original writers and directors did not make. Quite a few people left the project. And the biggest change that occurred when Doug went from Nickelodeon to Disney was that the production lost Billy West, voice of Doug, my beloved Billy West. And the reasons for why Billy West left depend on who you ask. Jim Jenkins claims that West hated Disney and was making outrageous salary demands that would have just tanked the show's budget. Considering they were going from Nickelodeon, which was still a relative outlaw upstart, to Disney, I find this hard to believe because the House of Mouse has some deep pockets. Billy West, on the other hand, claims that Disney wanted to essentially make him take a pay cut, all while forcing him to do even more characters. I read up to eight voices on the show. Uh, that sounds more in line with what we know about Disney, but I'll refrain from editorializing any further. <laughs> Billy West later told the Huffington Post, it was a deal that I just couldn't take. No one was taking me seriously, and they kept sending me deal memos, and they kept saying, time is running out, and I kept saying, I don't care. (laughs) Jim Jim Jenkins, in his role as resident nice guy, spent many years worried that Billy West didn't know how hard he fought to try to keep him on the show. Jenkins said, we have 180 degree different storytelling about this, but I was there and he was not. He's been told what his agents tell him. The deal was just breaking the back of our budget, and Billy doesn't know that. And Billy has recently said that he can't bring himself to watch the Disney episodes of Doug because it's too painful. But given all the Doug-related events that he does, it seems like he and Jim Jenkins are fine. 
for these Disney episodes, the production instead hired the voice talent of Tom McHugh, who does not have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> I'm sure he's a lovely man. And as a result of the slight change in Doug's voice, the writers of the show aged Doug by a year in this new Disney version, taking him from 11 and a half to 12 and a half. Did you watch it once it moved? Uh, a couple times. I was more of a recess guy. Mm, yeah, recess was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I liked recess a lot. Um, yeah, this pretty much ended that guy's career. His IMDb page stops with one other teenage ser- with one other TV series, uh, PB and J Otter, which he uh, was in one episode of in 2000, and then it abruptly stops. And that's the Jim Jenkins production. Wow, wow. Sorry, Thomas. Shouldn't have f-ed with Billy West. <laughs> Shouldn't have scabbed. Shouldn't have crossed the picket line. <laughs> Well, despite the voice actor kerfuffle, Disney production kicked into high gear and the new version of Doug launched in September of 1996. In order to differentiate the show from the Nick incarnation, its official title was Disney's Brand Spankin' New Doug, or just Disney's Doug, both of which suck. Why Brand Spankin' New? Why, who would say that? Who would, how, how do they know that would not immediately date it and get it clowned on into perpetuity? Ah, C-Sweet Brain. God, I hate executives. Um, if you are listening to this and you have an MBA, rethink your life. Numerous annoying tweaks were done to the show. A new, less good theme song, notably. And the near universal consensus is that this version is nowhere near as good as the Nick original. There's actually a whole article dedicated to this phenomenon on Refinery29 called Let's Be Honest, Disney Ruined Doug by Allie Hickson. She outlines the many minor character changes they made that messed with the emotional heart of the show. For example, Roger was portrayed as much more of a bully than he was in the Nick original, and he also went from living in a trailer park to being rich, thus eliminating the only element of socioeconomic diversity on the show, and removing a possible mitigating factor for his character. Why would they do that? What, they're like, oh, what, how, this this bully character is too finely shaded because he's also poor. Let's make him even more cartoonishly shitty. Incredible. C-sweet brain. In Hickson's piece, she also writes about being especially offended by the character of Connie. One of the most glaring examples, she writes, Connie was a fun secondary character on the Nickelodeon show who hung out with Patty and BB. She was also fantastic because she didn't have the same body as every other cartoon girl on the show. Connie wasn't skinny. She had curves. They never made her body central to her storyline, but it was still part of who she was. When the show went to Disney, Connie became noticeably thinner. They even made it part of the plot that Connie went to a beauty farm with her mom over the summer. How awful is that? That Beauty is Beauty Farm being their words. That is f***ed up. They also messed with the literal format of the show, taking it from two 11-minute stories to one 22-minute long story. So instead of having these smaller versions where you could focus in on a secondary character or just get bizarre, the plots then had to sustain a full episode. And that's when you start getting into sitcom territory with cliched stories and plot structures and beats. No one associated with the show would argue the merits of the Disney episodes over the Nick originals, and most fans blamed Disney for meddling with Jenkins' wholesome show, although he claims that the alterations were generally his call. We'd already done 150-some-odd stories, so our writing team was looking for a way to restart. The changes were my doing. I wanted to shake it up. He also said that part of his new Disney deal required him to do a fair amount of executive work, which left him overwhelmed and stretched thin, so he admits that his hand was taken off the wheel just a bit. He'd later say, I mostly agree with Doug fans who think the original 104 11-minute Doug stories made for Nick were the best. 
His production partner, David Campbell, felt the Nickelodeon stories were quirkier and better, while Constance Schulman, Patty Mayonnaise's voice actress, bemoaned the fact that production relocated to L.A., so all the New York-based voice actors had to do their parts remotely. She'd say, I missed all the gang crammed in the studio, waiting for their turn for the big group scene. Someone just dimmed the magic a little bit. I missed, all I missed the cocaine. Billy West had the best stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty much when I stopped engaging with Doug, and I'm tempted to say that bad decisions on both Nickelodeon and Disney's part squandered this gem of a show. But researching this episode, I was surprised to see that Doug was way more in the mix than ever once it moved to Disney. There was a live-action musical at Disney's theme park and toy merchandise with fast food tie-ins. And when the Disney version of the show ended in 1999, they capped off the series with Doug's first movie. That's the name of it. That's not a descriptor. It's also a bad first name. Yeah, you know, think you, I, I, as much as I love the show and as much as I, I think that Jim Jenkins is an okay guy, a lot of these are first draft ideas. <laughs> the plot of Doug's first movie is kind of shaky. Doug and Skeeter discover a horrifying monster in a local lake, and after getting to know the monster, they become friends with it and discover that the titans of industry in Bluffington, including BB's dad, I think, were polluting the lake. See, I hate shows that are, like, based in some form of reality, and then midway through they add, like, a fantastical element. That's why, like, I hated Gazoo in, Flint in the Flintstones. <laughs> I have thoughts on this. <laughs> Jenkins, see me after class. But I guess it doesn't really matter that the plot was crappy because it was supposed to go to home video, which is kind of, you know, they weren't putting their A game into it. <laughs> but then the powers of B at Nickelodeon decided to put it in theaters after seeing how well the 1998 movie for the Rugrats did. And Jim Jenkins in Neurotic After My Own Heart was both thrilled and terrified by this. He said, we were originally making a direct-to-video movie of Doug that we were assured would never see the big screen. That reflected in its budget, its schedule, and the way we animated it. Then, we're almost done and about to deliver it, and for whatever reason, Disney looked at the rough cut of the story and decided they were going to fly to New York. They came to tell me that my Doug movie was going to go theatrical. Of course, I fainted. When in my life did I ever think I'd be given that shot? Right behind that panic and fainting from that good news was the notion of, how do we get it ready? And it did okay financially, with a $5 million budget it earned $19 million at the box office. And things seemed pretty bright prior to its release, with the LA Times estimating that the value of the Doug franchise was about $100 million in 1999. So there seemed every possibility that Doug could live on in movies, but his first run out was not received well by critics. And I personally don't really remember this movie ever being talked about nope. much and doesn't I liked exist Doug a lot more yeah i liked doug a lot more than i liked rugrats but i actually like owned the rugrats movie and i think i saw it in theaters too so yeah there must have been some kind of advertising whiff there or maybe it just looked bad i don't know what else happened with it not much hmm. is that sad for them uh the movie yeah. eh. what do you think about it i i know nothing about it hmm well, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, the Simpsons movie kind of bombed too, didn't it? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if it bombed or not, but it was the kind of thing, it, like, no one felt the need to do another, which leads me to believe that it failed on some level. Uh, I think it came in late, but it did, it did have 536 million worldwide. <laughs> the Simpsons yeah, movie? on a 75 million wow. budget. But, but like, no one talks about it. The Simpsons movie? My yeah. dad is endlessly entertained by the spider pig bit. <laughs> so there's that. 
<laughs> the Doug movie essentially spelled the end of Doug. <laughs> Everything else. By the dawn of the 2000s, more irreverent, fast-paced shows like SpongeBob, Dexter's Laboratory, and my personal favorite, Angry Beavers, became all the rage, oh, yeah. essentially following in the footsteps of Ren and Stimpy. In that sense, that show won the battle of the Nicktoons in terms of influence. But in a sense, the spirit of, <laughs> but in a sense, the spirit of Doug lived on in the PBS animated series Arthur, which was a similarly structured show. And several people who worked on Doug went and worked on that. Jim Jenkins' Jumbo Productions closed down, probably because they sold the whole thing to Disney, and he and his production partner formed Cartoon Pizza, which produced a show called JoJo's Circus, Shorts for Sesame Streets, and Jenkins created the kids' show PB&J Otter, which is the only other voice credit of the new voice of Doug, and another show for Nick Jr. called Allegra's Window. As of 2017, Jenkins lives in Brunswick, Georgia, where he runs what he calls a wordsmithing workshop. Boy, I hate that. In recent years, he started kicking around an idea, at least in interviews, for what he called Doug's last movie as a bookend to Doug's <laughs> first movie. He goes to a euthanasia clinic in Switzerland. I was going to say, he goes to a right-to-die state. Talking to Lauren Duca for the Huffington Post in 2014, Jenkins described it as focusing on the ways we process our childhood friendships and what they mean to us even after they've come to an end. That would be the final message to fans. These relationships change, and they shape us, but they don't last forever. And this brings us to Doug and his beloved Patty Mayonnaise. Jenkins has been asked many times over the years whether he thinks that they ended up together. And you know, it's a fair question. They are sweet together. Patty once kissed him on the cheek, and in the final episode of the series, she asks Doug out on a date. And yet, when pressed on the subject, Jenkins is adamant that the pair do not end up together. Speaking to EW in 2016, he explained his reasoning, quote, it doesn't happen because really most people don't end up with their first loves. But then again, maybe they do. There isn't some rule. It's not in the Bible. It's just that most people don't. I don't know the answer yet, but I would predict that what I would do is make it where Patty is maybe not married, but in a serious relationship. And he goes on to theorize that Doug would cope with this crushing blow by pouring his heart out to a friend of his who happens to be a girl. And he continues, and naturally, I guess maybe it's a little predictable, but that's the one. That's the one he's comfortable enough to bear his soul to in this next phase of his life. And he discovers he's in love and didn't even know it. That was me all through high school. Just the most cliche <laughs> possible. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, once again, he's taking this from his real life. Jim Jenkins might feel this way because that's very similar to how it worked out with the real Patty in his life. On a Nickelodeon podcast, he told the story of how he met up with the woman who inspired Patty in the 80s when he was in his wilderness years, sucking down margaritas <laughs> at this Mexican restaurant all day. Uh, I'd like to quote him. It's my 10-year reunion, he says, and I didn't go. I was in New York working like crazy as a freelancer and just trying to make it there. And I got a phone call in New York, and it's Patty, the real Patty. And my heart's beating fast. She's like, I was at the reunion, and you weren't. And I was like, yeah, sorry, I had to work. And she goes, I found out you live in New York. Guess what? I do too. And she told me where she lives, and we lived across Central Park from one another. And she says, why don't you come over for dinner? And he likens the lead up to a Doug episode. He says he's thinking, what, am, what do I wear? What's she going to look like? All that's happening is I'm walking across Central Park to her apartment, just wondering and just hoping, all those things. I was, at the time, very available. 
And so I walk up to the apartment and I hear the lock turn. It's getting ready to happen. And she opens the door and she's perfect. Just perfect. She looks spectacular and she's so happy and her arms fly up and we hug. This is all wonderful, right? And then she wheels around and goes, oh, Jimmy, I want you to meet my husband. And I don't even remember the rest of the evening. (laughs) That's so sad. What a sad little beta he is. (laughs) So is Doug. What a sad, this is high fidelity. (laughs) And yeah, you know, I've been talking about doing a episode on my beloved wonder years for months now. And uh, spoiler, it's the same reason why the writers didn't have Kenny and Winnie end up together in the wonder years, because that's not especially realistic. Jenkins said of his own experience with the real life Patty, in the end, that's the way life is. It's bittersweet. It doesn't always work out the way you dreamed. And I'm struggling to think of an uplifting kicker for such a gut punch of an emotional truth. So allow me to quote from the poet laureates Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, whose lives I am documenting on another podcast that is slowly killing me, which is why I have so few brain cells left to come up with any other closing sentiments for this episode. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you find you get what you need. And you know, Jim Jenkins seems to have a good life. And he says that people still regularly come up with him and say, thank you for making a show that taught me how to treat people. And I think that's a pretty cool legacy. Is that it? (laughs) Closing thoughts? Yeah, that's all I got. I'm very and the really weird thing is watching you do that like the sounds don't match up with what your mouth is doing I don't know if it's a lag in mm. zoom or if it's just yeah it's pretty cool I'll try to like once I get the the video of this back I'll cut that out and send it to you. <laughs> I don't really want to see that <laughs> I'd say maybe don't <laughs> uh final thoughts final thoughts final thoughts final thoughts final thoughts final folks thank you for listening this has been too much information i'm a beatbox i'm alex eigel and i'm jordan runtog we'll catch you next time too much information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 